0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dino dig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in the news, we have a new Tyrannosaur named Suski Tyrannus from New Mexico, a potentially new Cretaceous Stegosaur, and a lot more. We also have an interview with Dr. Andrew McDonald from the Western Science Center, and we talk about some recent dinosaurs he named, including Dynamoterra and Invictarchs. And we have dinosaur of the day, Chungkingosaurus. But before we get into that, we would like to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalan, Ayumi, Paul Acanthus, Lydia, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, and Mayu. And it's not too late to join our Patreon. We haven't had any new patrons in a couple weeks, but if you'd like to join, then please head over to patreon.com slash I Know Dino.
1: Yeah, we're not too far away from our next goal, which I think we might have undersold (laughs) (laughs) this drawing I've been working on inspired by Planet Earth 2.
0: It's going to be pretty awesome.
1: Mm -hmm. I also just want to thank everybody for the well wishes a couple episodes back when I was Pretty sick and got a lot of thoughtful messages. So, thank you. Feeling much better now.
0: Jumping into the news, we have only one story that I'm going to talk about because it is in depth. There was a lot to talk about. So, it's a new Tyrannosaur that was found last week and it was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, which unfortunately is behind a paywall. But thanks to everyone who shared it with us on Discord and Patreon. This paper was published by Sterling J. Nesbitt and others, but it includes a lot of people who we've interviewed on the show before, including Steve Brussati, Jim Kirkland, and Andrew McDonald, who we interview later in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so jumping into this new dinosaur, it's named Suski Tyrannus. A lot of people are just calling it Suski, which I like because that's easy to say.
1: It is, yeah. <laughs> it sounds nice, too. Yeah. Very friendly sounding.
0: It does, unlike how it probably behaved in real life. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and its species name is Hazel A. Suski tyrannus comes from the word suski, which is zuni for coyote. And that's apparently because it was called the coyote of the Cretaceous for decades prior to its official naming. Interesting. And then when it came around to name it, they were like, okay, yeah, we'll stick with coyote but let's make it something more interesting than just coyote in English. And they used the Zuni language because of where it was found. And then Hazelay is after Hazel Wolf for work at the Morino Hill formation. So well-earned. As you could guess, it was found in the Moreno Hill formation in New Mexico, and it was found in the Pueblo of Zuni, where much if not all of the Moreno Hill formation is located. And the tribe has previously been honored by Zuni Ceratops, So the name Zuni might be familiar. Suski is from the late Cretaceous about 92 million years ago. That's basically how old the formation is. And they actually found it way back in 1998. In this case, it's really interesting because the discoverer is the same person as the lead author, which a lot of times isn't the case when there's a 20-year gap in between yeah. <laughs> the fossil discovery and the publication. So PBS actually has some great pictures and interview information about this find. And they spoke with Sterling Nesbit the lead author and discoverer, who found it when he was 16. I think he was with a group, so I'm not sure if he was technically the first person to see it. But there are pictures of him when he's 16, pointing at bones that are still completely buried in mud, other than Hmm. the little part sticking out. So he was definitely there at the very beginning. That's
1: cool. It comes full circle.
0: It does. And there's also one of the pictures was taken by Hazel Wolf, who the species is named after. So they've clearly been involved ever since 1998. (laughs) So yeah, definitely been working there for a long time and deserving of the species name. They actually found two individuals, which is always great because then you get a little bit more information about the dinosaur and you're less likely to describe the dinosaur based on things that are just individual variation from the dinosaur. But unfortunately, there isn't a lot of overlap between the two dinosaurs. So one of them is basically just the jaws and two neck vertebrae. So not a lot. It's kind of like part of the upper jaw and part of the lower jaw. It's not even a full upper jaw or lower jaw. But they still decided to pick that one for the holotype probably because a lot of times skulls are a little more diagnostic. They tend to have more differences between species. So I'm guessing that's why they picked it as the holotype. And then the other find was a lot more complete It had much less of the skull though, it had kind of the tip of the bottom jaw and then a little bit of the post orbital, so kind of behind the eye. And then also about a dozen vertebrae pieces, much of both legs and feet, and a few fragments from the hips, and just two finger claws, but nothing else from the arm really. (laughs) So it's kind of weird that they just had the very end. A lot of time you see the opposite where the claws are missing, this time it's just the claws. Both of the individuals are about the same size, so they analyze them together, kind of treating it like it was just one dinosaur. When they're comparing it, when they laid out the pieces together and stuff, you can basically just treat it like it was one dinosaur in terms of how big it was and description of it. But we know that it's not the same dinosaur because there's a couple bones that overlap. So dinosaurs don't have two mouths, for example, (laughs) so you could tell (laughs) that it's two individuals.
1: Yeah, they're weird, but they're not that weird.
0: Yeah, unless this is a very interesting dinosaur. (laughs) During their analysis, they took a histological section from the femur, and they say it, quote, exhibits a minimum of three widely spaced growth lines with no sign of decreasing growth rate. For example, similar tissues throughout the cortex and no secondary osteons, indicating that the individual was young and actively growing at the time of death, end quote. So, in other words, it was about three years old, and it was still growing rapidly, which is what you'd expect because as far as we know with tyrannosaurs, a lot of them reached skeletal maturity in like their teens. Mm -hmm. So, it's not surprising that it was still growing rapidly when it was three. It's pretty young for a dinosaur in general, actually. Yeah. Based on the bone structure, they think it grew a little bit more like early theropods than T. rex, and therefore, it wouldn't have reached the same massive size as T. rex, also not surprising since it's 92 million years old, so we're talking almost 30 million years before T. rex. And we know a lot of those earlier tyrannosaurs were smaller, even at adult size. In their recreation, they recreate it with three fingers, which is pretty typical for a early theropod hand. Although all they found were just the claws from the first and second fingers. So I'm not sure how confident they are <laughs> in this restoration. But Phylogenetically speaking, it does seem like it probably still had three fingers, a little bit more like a normal theropod than the the weird features that T-Rex would later have. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have that same huge, disproportionately massive skull. It's still a little bit more normal sized.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't quite specialized yet.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not quite in that super weird alpha predator mode yet. Which I think is partly why they call it the coyote of the Cretaceous too, because they expect that it wasn't the apex predator. So just like a coyote has to be maybe a little bit more adaptable and Mm -hmm. maybe scavenging from time to time and things like that. From the pieces that they found, they estimate the skull was about a foot or 30 centimeters long. So that's a decent sized skull. And they can tell that its snout was broad and U-shaped like later tyrannosauroids. If you've ever looked at some of these dinosaur fossils straight on, you know that things like Allosaurus have actually a pretty narrow head. But usually when you look at dinosaurs, you're looking at them from kind of a profile view and uh, something like an Allosaurus doesn't look that different than something like a Mm T-Rex because they both have pretty long heads. But when you look at them straight on, you can see this really big difference. And this one's already starting to get a wider head. So even though it's smaller and the head isn't proportionally huge on its body, It is starting to get a little more robust. Maybe it had a stronger bite force than some other similar theropods at the time, and it's starting to specialize a little bit, but they didn't have a real complete skull, so I'm not sure how much they can tell about its bite force. They didn't talk about it in the paper, obviously, because this is just the first description. It also has those characteristic D-shaped teeth and a set of four small teeth in the premaxilla at the front of the mouth that we're really used to seeing in T-Rex that might tell you a little bit about its diet. In with the paper, there's one of those really nice skeletal drawings by Scott Hartman showing all of the bones that were found and then you know which ones were from which of the two individuals as well as which ones overlap and a lot of interpretation from the other relatives obviously like how the other fingers were shaped and how bulky its rib cage would have been and things like that and basically everything about the tail because they found very little of that. I'm guessing that he finished his drawing a few months ago at least, because last month he had a post where he talked about how he was adding lips to all of his new, quote, non-beaked, non-avian theropod skeleton reconstructions, end quote, which would definitely include this one because it doesn't have a beak. (laughs) Right. And it's a theropod. And it's a theropod. Yeah. But just like a lot of the older Tyrannosaurs, it's depicted as like its teeth sticking out and not having lips. But I'm guessing if he had another shot at this one, he would redraw it as a skeletal with lips covering the teeth. Hmm. And the reason he said that he started doing that is basically he thinks the majority of evidence points to having lips over teeth versus not having lips over teeth. So we might be headed in that direction generally. I don't know. It's still pretty contentious. Yeah, There's a lot of people arguing. There was a lot at SVP last year where we heard about people arguing over whether or not things had lips or whether they even needed something to protect their teeth since they shed them all the time. Overall, the skeletal drawing puts it at around a meter or three feet tall and three meters or nine feet long. When I tried to measure it, it looked a little bit smaller than that, but since it's still growing, it's only three years old, its exact size isn't really all that useful because we're basically comparing, you know, three-year-olds. It's kind of like if you took a random three-year-old human and then tried to guess how big an adult would be, (laughs)
1: <laughs> but maybe an even bigger difference.
0: Yeah, it's it's super hard to project that kind of thing, especially because it's like we know it's still rapidly growing. How can you even possibly make a guess at it? So at this young state, it's definitely smaller than the Morose individual that was found and described in February. And PBS said that it was larger than Morose and that Morose was four feet tall and six feet long, which would be super weird proportions for a theropod. Nothing's ever six feet long and four feet tall. <laughs> like nothing. It's kind as, of boxy. Yeah. So there's With the tail, they're never that length and height. So I don't know. Maybe they were talking about the actual fossil block that it came out of. Mm. I'm not really sure. But it could be that it was larger as an individual. I think that might be what they're going for. Because as a quick refresher, Morose was a tyrannosaur. It lived about 96 million years ago. So about 4 million years older than Suski. And the one morose individual that we have, morose individual, <laughs> was about six or seven years old. And they estimate weighed about 78 kilograms or 172 pounds when it died and was likely near adult size. So even though it was estimated to be about four feet or 1.2 meters tall at the hip, if it's twice the age of Suski, you know, maybe Suski ended up getting bigger by the time it was an adult. So. It's hard to say. Also, morose is only known from a single leg and a few toe bones and a couple teeth. So we don't have as good of an idea about the overall size of the animal unless you just take kind of standard proportions of a tyrannosaur and say like, well, the leg is this long. So we think it was its overall body was this long, which isn't the worst thing to do, but it's obviously not the best way <laughs> to size an animal. The paper itself didn't name a specific weight for the individual but a couple sources mentioned that they thought it was between 20 and 40 kilograms, putting it between about 45 and 90 pounds. So then that would make Suski both about 4 million years younger and about half the weight of Morose. But again, Suski was still growing, so it's hard to say. And I think the narrative of T-Rex being at the end of this evolutionary path and therefore tyrannosaurs increasing in size generally is really driving a lot of this. So it's like, well, Suski has to be bigger because it's 4 million years younger and we know that the younger tyrannosaurs were bigger. But unfortunately, evolution isn't that simple. It's very possible that say Morose was on the line that actually ended up being T. rex and Suski was on a side branch and was smaller or even more likely is probably that neither of them <laughs> were on the same branch that ended up being T-Rex and they're just all cousins. So it's hard to say. It would be good to get a larger individual of Suski, Hopefully they can find something. There's also an accompanying piece of paleo art that shows it approaching a fish kind of laying next to a drying pond. <laughs> and on our discord, somebody asked like, what's up with this fish? Because it is pretty obvious. It's like, it's looking right at this fish. So I tried to find what's the deal with fish, and fish aren't mentioned anywhere in the paper. Maybe there's going to be another paper describing fish from the formation. I don't know. The discovery is over 20 years old, so that seemed kind of strange that it wouldn't have been mentioned anywhere. And I can't find reference to fish anywhere from this formation. So I could have missed it, but I I searched pretty thoroughly, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So I don't know. Maybe? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know why it's approaching a fish. They didn't find like gut contents or copper light or anything that had fish scales or anything in it. I don't know.
1: A mystery. Maybe you're right. Maybe there's going to be a later paper that talks more about the formation or something.
0: Yeah. There's also a Zuni ceratops in there for obvious reasons. because mm. that makes perfect sense. So, which made you think like, okay, there's a Zuni ceratops and then there's a fish. So the fish must be from there too. But I don't know. My best guess was that since it was kind of in like a muddy spot, Maybe they were guessing at the kind of environment it was in when it died, and maybe it was in kind of like a mudstone sort of thing, and therefore near water. I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Could be, there's there's a lot of fish around, and there always has been.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It is likely that Suski at one point did see fish. It's also really interesting to me that there were two individuals that died while both were rapidly growing. And in that three-year-old ballpark, it makes you wonder, like, were they siblings? Mm. Were they in like a group of juveniles that happened to stick together? But then we often think that tyrannosaurs had some parental care,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which would make me think siblings again. I don't know.
1: Need to find more fossils.
0: Yeah. Or, well, I guess to answer that question, we need to find more of these specific individuals, Right, which doesn't seem very likely. You're right, though. We could answer whether or not Tyrannosaurs in general were in like familial groups or in groups by age by finding more fossils. In their description, it came out as the closest relative to Timerlingia. Unfortunately, they didn't include Morose in their comparison, in their phylogeny, but I think that's because they submitted the papers probably around the same time. So I don't think Morose was really described by the time this paper was submitted, because Morose isn't mentioned anywhere in the paper. So I think they. The papers basically coincided. So we ended up with a paper that has theropods without lips, <laughs> unlike what Scott Hartman would do, and doesn't mention Morose, which came out a couple months earlier. Oh, well. Suski Tyrannus was briefly shown at Virginia Tech. There's a little video of it, and you might have seen pictures of the fossils laid out on a piece of red cloth, and they also have like a T-Rex Dentary next to it for comparison. And it looks like it could have fit basically the entire torso of Seussky Tyrannus in its mouth without a problem. Yeah, not really the same scale at all. Nope. (laughs) But when it was at Virginia Tech, there was a news piece saying that it will be moved to Arizona this summer. And I'm not sure when this summer is. Well, I know when the summer is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it starts in June. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know when in the summer it's going to move to Arizona or if it's going to be on display until then or what the deal is. But maybe if you're near Virginia Tech, you might be able to see this thing. It's pretty interesting looking. It's also pretty fragmentary. At first, I figured that it was kind of just like a bunch of bones that have washed out and that they collected separately but they said it was partly articulated, so they must have actually dug it out. I just think the preservation on it wasn't great, so we have a lot of little fragments. But still, I think it's a pretty significant fossil. And they say that it's going to be stored at the Arizona Museum of Natural History after it leaves Virginia. So I don't know if they're going to put it on display or if they're just going to have it in the collections, but hopefully it ends up on display. It's a pretty interesting dinosaur. Everybody loves T-Rex, and we all wonder how it became the way it is. (laughs) That's true. Oh, I should also mention they depicted it with feathers covering pretty much its whole body.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, because it's kind of halfway in between Euteranus and T-Rex. So I guess they're in the Tyrannosaurs mostly had feathers camp. They're kind of like smaller feathers, like a little more proto-fuzzy than what we saw in Euteranus. So I don't know, maybe they're just hedging their bets going halfway in between. Yeah, why not? There definitely wasn't good enough preservation to see anything about feathers though, unfortunately.
1: In other discovery news, in St. Petersburg, Russia, paleontologists have found some fossils of Cretaceous stegosaurs in Yakutia's Suntar region, which might belong to a new species. They're hoping to learn more, such as in addition to whether or not it's a new species, if they chewed and where they produced offspring. Should be really interesting. So hopefully we see those papers soon. Yeah. In Escondido, California, the Roynan Museum of Earth Sciences and Paleontology Will be shutting down on June 29th. This museum opened four years ago. It was out of Keith Roynan's personal fossil collection that he's been collecting for the past 70 years. And he used to run an unofficial museum in his home. And then he got funding for an actual museum. But the problem is this museum is basically run by Keith. He's been teaching classes, curating fossils, working as the, muse- working as the museum director. But now he's 81 years old, so he wants to retire, understandably but there's no replacements for them. They also don't have enough volunteers and they don't have money to pay somebody. So there's museums that are interested in acquiring the collection, but it sounds like they want it to be an all or nothing deal. The museum, in the meantime, they've paid their rent until the end of July. and I think that's why it's not going to shut down till the end of June.
0: Oh, gotcha. They might be getting caught up in the crazy real estate price increases in California too, if they had like a four-year lease oh, yeah. that's ending or a four or five-year lease.
1: Could be. But it sounds like they also just needed more help, more yeah. people.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's unfortunate. Escondido's pretty close to San Diego. I lived pretty near Escondido for a while. I'm kind of surprised I can't find anybody.
1: I think it's a matter of not having money.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Can't find anybody for free. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. It
1: does make it more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> in some happier news, in Ogden, Utah, Ogden's George S. Eccles Dinosaur Park has some new models, including a Utah Rapture. The park is getting one hundred and sixty thousand dollars worth of renovations, and they're going to use that to repair other models, such as the Brachiosaurus and their existing Utah Raptor. And the museum is also soon going to be able to make their own dinosaurs. The new models are going to be ready around March of next year. And the new Utah Raptor, which is of course the state dinosaur of Utah, will reflect the most recent findings and then be next to their old Utah Raptor, so you can see how the thinking and the science has changed. Oh, cool! Yeah. And the new one is smaller. Oh, really? hmm
0: Wow. I was just rereading the original paper that described Utah Raptor, and it looks so much like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Yeah. It's like a little bit shrink-wrapped looking compared to how we think it was now, like more bulky. So I'm surprised that it was even bigger way back in this original park. I wonder if it's partly just that they're making it more accurate or something, because... There's always the temptation to make sculptures big. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it.
0: We're still waiting to get the papers out of that Utah raptor project mm-hmm. where we get a new Utah raptor description.
1: I think they might still need more funding.
0: Yeah, to get the fossils out of the block.
1: Mm-hmm. And last in the news, the Museum for Natural Sciences in Brussels, Belgium has a new dinosaur on display from now until April of next year. It's known as Arcane? Arcane? I think that's how you say it. It's an allosaur. It's about twenty-eight feet or eight point seven meters long. The skeleton's really well preserved, seventy percent complete, and it comes from a private anonymous collector. The skeleton was found in Wyoming, and the plans for the museum to identify the specimen and determine if it's a new
0: species. Cool. Seventy percent complete is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And twenty-eight feet long—that's definitely allosaurus sort of territory. Oh yeah. But we know how new species go. Just a subtle difference in a leg or a foot or a <laughs> yeah. an opening in a skull or something, and it could be a new species.
1: It's cool that those museum's getting a chance to research it, too. Yeah, definitely. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th, or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G.
0: And now on to our interview with Andrew.
1: So we're here with Dr. Andrew McDonald, who's the curator and an educator at the Western Science Center in Hemet, California. And his research focuses on the evolution of dinosaurs in North America during the Cretaceous, and he regularly does field work in New Mexico. Since becoming curator, he's already named two new dinosaurs, Dynamo Terror and Invictarchs. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So before we get into your new discoveries, cause I know once we go down that rabbit hole, we won't be going back into the past as much, but I wanted to ask it's you... It's all
1: about the past, Gary. Yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was the first dinosaur that
2: you named? So that goes back to uh, 2010. A dinosaur, Another dinosaur from New Mexico, actually, but from a different area. A somewhat older rock formation called the Moreno Hill Formation. And it was found in 1996 by my colleague, Doug Wolf, now the director of the Zuni Dinosaur Institute for... Geosciences uh, oh, yeah. in in Arizona. So he found this animal in 1996. It's uh, an early hadrosaur, uh, one of the early duck-billed dinosaurs. Doug allowed me to work on it for my undergraduate thesis during college when I was at University of Nebraska. And in 2010, we published it as uh, a new species, uh, which we named Heawati. Heawati is uh, a couple of uh, Zuni words, which mean grinding mouth. Uh, in reference to the the chewing ability that, that Hadrosaur has evolved.
0: Cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad I didn't try to say it because it starts <laughs> with a J, and I would have not it said, starts... "Hey." Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's quite the uh, undergraduate work to be working on. Well, it was um,
2: it was it was an excellent opportunity uh, that Doug gave me there. I was at the University of Nebraska, which has an excellent. Uh, fossil collection, very extensive, but it's mostly uh, Cenozoic mammals, mm-hmm. which are fascinating in their own way. Um, but being a dinosaur guy, I wanted to dive into those. So Doug let me take on this project. It's not a, an extensive amount of material. It's, it's one individual, one partial skeleton, uh, some skull bones and a few vertebrae but the skull bones are distinctive, showing that it was a a new species. And it's from a time uh, around 90 million years ago that's very poorly known in North America for dinosaurs. Hayawati is part of the same fauna that includes Zuniceratops, the early horned dinosaur, uh, and Nothronycus, the first therizinosaur ever found in North America. So it's part of a really interesting little fauna there, Um, really the only fauna dating back to about 90 million years ago from North America.
0: Awesome, is yeah. that so? How did you get connected? Because the Zuni and like New Mexico—that's obviously a ways from where you were studying. How did that yes. link happen?
2: <laughs> well, I've known since eighth grade that I wanted to go into paleontology professionally. I, I've always loved dinosaurs, but as far as deciding to make it my career, that really came about in in eighth grade uh, because of the TV show Walking with Dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, so I, I knew I wanted to dive into research and started looking at uh, learning all about the anatomy and the geology. And one thing that I didn't know about was field work. I would never done field work before. And I thought it would be a good idea to get some experience with that before I delved too deeply into paleontology to find out whether I enjoyed it. And so uh, I met Doug Wolf while I was on vacation in Phoenix mm-hmm. in 2002. And then the year after that, I went out with him uh, when he and his crew was still digging in the Zuniceratops bone bed in the Moreno Hill Formation. And uh, that was my first taste of field work. I was a junior in high school at the time and I loved it immediately. So that's how I, that's how I met Doug. And he and I have been working together in New Mexico ever since. So for about uh, 16 years now, starting with our first project together, our first real collaboration was, was Hey Awati and uh and we've just kind of gone on from there
0: awesome yes yeah, yeah, okay. so that kind of shows it's never too early to start indeed <laughs> great and then i also your twitter handle is hippo draco so i'm yes. assuming that's one of your favorite discoveries
2: so uh hey awati was my undergrad thesis and hey was a, a great opportunity in and of itself but also it led me to working on the the early duckbill dinosaurs, the, the ancestors of the hadrosaurs, uh, what we call the basal iguanodonts. Uh, so this would be things like like iguanodon itself uh, from the early Cretaceous, and some late Cretaceous things like awati. So, for my dissertation, when I start uh, when I started grad school, I decided to look at the evolution of the iguanodons as a whole uh, across the whole world. So I traveled around a bunch of different museums here in in the states, uh, also uh, several institutions in Europe, especially Britain, uh, looking at all their iguanodon material. And uh, that so that was a really great opportunity to learn a lot about these animals and just see a, a huge number of fossils and visit a lot of different museums. So one of the central parts of my dissertation was these new iguanodonts that Jim Kirkland and his crew had been finding in Utah in the early Cretaceous Cedar Mountain formation. Hmm. So so this is the same formation where Jim and his crew have been finding a lot of ankylosaurs, a lot of sauropods, Utah raptor, the giant dromaeosaur, as well as a lot of uh, iguanodonts. And so he um, allowed me to work on those as part of my dissertation. And uh, I had two partial skeletons in front of me, from different levels in the Cedar Mountain Formation. One was around 130 million years old, the other was slightly younger, around 125 million years old. And they both represent new species. One that we named uh, Iguana Colossus. (laughs) Uh, It's a very large animal, as the name suggests. And the other we named Hippodraco. And uh, I came up with both of those names, and I like all the names I come up with, but uh, Hippodraco is one of my favorites. I rather like that one.
0: (laughs) So what does mm-hmm. hippodraco mean?
2: So hippodraco, uh, hippo is uh, Greek, meaning horse, and draco is Latin, meaning dragon. So it's the horse dragon. Ah. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah, these uh, these animals had superficially very horse-like heads, very yeah. long, low heads, uh, long snouts with... Uh, Something to bite uh, plants at the front, and in, in horses, it's incisors. In iguanodonts, there was a toothless beak. So there, there's there's a, a lot of superficial similarities there. So the the name seemed appropriate.
0: Yeah, they're not the cows of the Cretaceous. They're the horses of the Cretaceous. <laughs>
2: I, I think yeah. I think uh, I think you could call um, ceratopsians the cows of the Cretaceous, and the, oh, yeah. these, the iguanodons would be the horses of the Cretaceous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Cool, and then I think in that paper you also talked a little bit about the evolution of their thumb spike. Could you tell us why they have that crazy thumb spike?
2: That is an enduring mystery.
0: Um, you know, <laughs> oh shucks!
2: Back in the you know, back in the eighteen twenties, of course, Gideon Mantel placed it on the nose as mm-hmm. a nose horn. Uh, it is such an outlandish structure. The, uh, <laughs> there's really nothing else like it. And what's interesting is that it, it's not really there, there's not a single you know standard thumb spike design among all of Iguanodons. Uh, some like Iguanodon itself have very large conical thumb spikes. Uh, some of the later ones like Eolambia from Utah had pretty small thumb spikes. Uh, and then of course, by the time you get to true Hadrosaurs, the thumb spike is completely, completely lost. And so in the early Cretaceous, Pretty much every iguanodont has a thumb spike of some configuration. A big conical one in iguanodon, a smaller one in mantellosaurus. Uh, one of the iguanodonts from Britain called uh, beryllium has this weird, blunt, kind of pyramid shaped uh, thumb spike. Hmm. So yeah, there's clearly something, some function or multiple functions to this structure because it persisted in iguanodonts for many millions of years, uh, all throughout the early Cretaceous. And so as to why they had it, it's difficult to say. Uh, Maybe it was defense. Maybe it was fighting amongst themselves. Maybe it had something to do with their feeding behavior. Maybe it was all of the above. uh, Maybe none of those. Uh, It is a really peculiar structure.
0: If it was using it for feeding, would that be like the whole termite nest sort of thing?
2: Maybe, or maybe just uh, ripping down branches. Maybe stripping, stripping tree bark, mm-hmm. uh, uprooting trees. Because they, the forelimbs of iguanodons, especially like iguanodon itself, were actually very powerful. They they probably walked on all fours, so these their their front legs were pretty well muscled. In the case of iguanodon and some other of the European animals, the uh, forelimbs are quite large and the hands are quite large with very large thumb spikes. So uh, there was clearly a lot of power behind the the, the thumb spikes um, for whatever they were using it for. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe pulling down trees, maybe fighting off theropods, maybe fighting amongst themselves. Yeah,
0: it's, interesting. It's a weird thing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And then you mentioned Eolambia. Did you also name that one?
2: No, that was actually named by uh, Jim Kirkland back in 1998. Oh, okay.
0: Um, you just yeah. wrote about it a little bit,
2: right? Uh, Jim and I did, uh, along with some of our other colleagues, uh, the full anatomical description of Eolambia. That paper came out in 2012, and In the 14 years between that paper and when Jim named it, uh, a lot of additional material was found in in Utah, yeah. Including two juvenile bone beds with nearly every part of the skeleton represented. So Eolambi is actually a a very well-known dinosaur now. Um, And actually in 2017, uh, some colleagues and I described another specimen, uh, an an adult specimen, that was dug up by the Field Museum that includes the, the first really good adult uh, pelvis, pelvic bones of the mm. so, so it's actually a very well-known dinosaur, um, and by far the most abundant dinosaur in Utah at that time. This would be about uh, 90, 97 million years ago.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, I love those papers that get a little bit less news press generally because they're not like a new dinosaur. But a lot of times, to read, they're more interesting than the new discoveries because new discoveries are a lot of scientific statements about like well this bone has this slight difference than these other bones and therefore we think it's a unique species but when you get into like we have a large sample set now we can start to actually think about maybe where its muscles went how it might have behaved even how it grew up those are those are as great
2: right it's uh you know doing an anatom- anatomical description is really the the first step for figuring out any dinosaur or any prehistoric animal uh, of any kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, just figuring, just documenting that anatomy because then that allows uh, all sorts of uh, specialists to, to have a look at it. So someone who wants to look at brain anatomy can pull up the description of, of the skull. Someone who wants to look at uh, muscle function can pull up description of the limb bones. Someone who wants to look at how flexible the the spinal column was, can pull up descriptions of the vertebrae. So once you document the anatomy, that opens up all the other doors for looking at
0: all other aspects of the animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So I guess we can switch over to the Western Science Center.
1: (laughs) Well, and the two recent dinosaurs that you've you've described and named.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah.
1: So can you tell us a little bit about how
2: did you find these two? Sure. So uh, these are both from the Menifee Formation, in the San Juan Basin of New Mexico, uh, this would be around 80 million years old. So it's another poorly known slice of time in North America for dinosaurs. There aren't many species named from around 80 million years ago. We found these specimens in 2011 and 2012, found by us, uh, me and Doug Wolf, along with uh, a lot of uh, volunteers who've been working with us for a long time. So collecting these fossils was really uh, an excellent example of how important volunteers are to paleontology, because it was it was me and Doug, but pretty much the rest of the crew consisted of volunteers. Everyone from, from students to uh, retired people uh, wow. just wanted the experience. So we found three specimens of our new armored dinosaur in Victarx, all isolated from each other at three separate spots, uh, all fairly fragmentary, uh, mostly consisting of the osteoderms, the bony armor plates that cover the the back of the animal. And then dynamo terror uh, came from the same area, and that's a single skeleton, also very fragmentary. Uh, The skeleton had evidently been on the surface for a very long time before we found it. Uh, There were big chunks that had clearly once been pieces of large limb bones, like the the femur, the tibia, but they were completely blown apart into shards uh, just by, by weathering on, on the surface. Fortunately, though, some of the other bones, the smaller bones, were pretty intact, uh, especially, most importantly, the two frontal bones from the top of the skull. Mm-hmm. And those two bones that have all the features that signify dynamo terror as a, a whole new species of tyrannosaur. Cool.
1: For the Invictarks, there's a a line in the paper that says the name refers to the blustery conditions where the specimen was discovered. What yeah, what was it like?
2: <laughs> yeah, so the, the full name of Invictarchs is Invictarchs zephyri. Uh, the species name is zephyri, uh, which refers to uh, zephyrus, the Western wind, the Latin name. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, when we found Invictarchs, the very first specimen we discovered uh, was actually the first dinosaur skeleton of any kind we found when we started working in the Menifee back in 2011. And it was situated up on a high, narrow ridge about 30 feet off the ground. And the Menifee is pretty windy on a normal day but for some reason this this may in 2011 was just unbelievably windy <laughs> so we were up there uh with safety lines up on top of this ridge trying to excavate these bones you know, making plaster jackets in 40 mile per hour winds wow uh yeah so yeah we we ended up with more plaster on us and the surrounding rock than on the bones <laughs> yes. um yeah, so so that that was an adventure. Fortunately, the other two specimens of Invictarchs were in less complicated places. <laughs> so yeah, so I, but I, I had to honor that that experience in some way.
1: Yeah, I knew there had to be some kind of story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you have a typical day as a curator and
2: educator, or is it all it all just depends? Uh yeah, it kind of depends. I mean, some days we have an event going on. Maybe here at the museum, we do a lot of offsite events as well. Some days, I just spend inside in the collections room all day, uh writing or looking at the fossils. Some days I'm, you know, answering emails, uh helping visiting scientists with uh, with their work in the collections. So it's it's quite a varied job. My my main purpose here is is things like Invictarx and Dynamo Terror uh to to do research and and grow the fossil collection. But there's a lot more to it than that as well. Sure.
0: So do you make a lot of trips out to New Mexico? We do. We go every summer. Uh we usually try to do
2: four or five weeks out there in total. Uh, and, and that's really good because it, depending on the size, uh, the quantity of what we find, uh, it can take a week or two to fully excavate a site. We got a bit lucky with Invictarks and Dynamo Terror in that nature had done pretty much all the work for us. Hmm. All the bones were exposed to the surface. There was very little actual heavy digging to do. Recent years, though, we've started finding some more uh, substantial quarries where we actually have to dig a, a bigger hole to fully excavate. And that's good because then the, the bone is in much better condition. Uh, there are a lot more details preserved and a lot more of the animal can be recovered. So we usually do about four or five weeks out there, a mix of digging and prospecting. We're always searching for new sites. It's a very rich area, mm-hmm. very intricate area. Uh, the Badlands are very complex, carved out by, by water, by water flow even though it's not that, in terms of area, it's not that big a, a region, but uh, but our field areas consist of all these badlands. And so it really takes a long time to fully prospect an area. It's a lot of walking up and down and uh, going up on top of ridges and down into little canyons and uh, twisting around uh, hoodoos. So it's a very complex environment and it's full of fossils. Did you say hoodoos? Hoodoos, yeah. These are... Uh, <laughs> it's um like a a little, a little hill or even a spire of rock uh oh. carved out by, by water or by by wind action a lot of the times uh, the badlands form these nice kind of rolling hills with uh, with uh, with rock exposed um, but sometimes the rock forms these tall spires it could be a, a spire of mudstone capped by a piece of resistant sandstone <laughs> so it's uh it's it's really pretty it's it's a lot like the area around uh, Dinosaur Provincial Park up in Alberta.
0: Hmm.
2: Fair rock, very complex, intricate uh, topography.
0: Awesome. Cool. And then is there a reason why you go for four to five weeks? Is that because it takes the other 47 weeks of the year to kind of prepare it, or is there some other limitation?
2: Well, um, mostly we're limited by the place itself and and our own endurance. (laughs) We're up at about 6,000 feet um there's no shade anywhere the the only trees around are petrified cretaceous ones Hmm. so it it does take a lot out of you not just walking but obviously also digging uh, moving moving a lot of rock in conditions like that Um, and so after about two or three weeks starting to flag a little bit uh, we tried to (laughs) try to take breaks take a day off here and there so we can make the trip as long as possible but uh, and then the the environment itself it can mm-hmm. snow up there as late as May we've seen ah. and be quite cold at night especially so we are kind of limited to this time uh, over the summer uh, when it's when it's uh, workable out there it's a beautiful place it's one of my favorite places to go uh, just from a from an aesthetic standpoint not even a scientific one it's a really beautiful place uh, very remote and uh, yeah so it's always fun to go there but we always have to be a bit careful about how we conduct ourselves out there you know it's always good to get plenty of water the right food to to get out of the sun if
0: you start to feel a bit strange so, right. so what's it like being in that remote of a place for like a month do you do you go into some town periodically or do you stay just like out in the sticks
2: there's uh there's some towns nearby so we're able to go up and uh, you know Make phone calls and, and get internet service, uh, and most importantly, get fresh supplies. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> take a shower. <laughs> take a shower. Yeah. Uh, go out to dinner. Yeah. So we, we try to we try to break it up. You know, go into town once a week or so. Yeah, because otherwise we would just you know work ourselves into the ground literally.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
2: <laughs> and then someone would find you in a couple million years. <laughs> and then someone would find us. Yeah. I wonder what this uh, strange ape is doing on top of the dinosaur (laughs) skeleton. Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) What do you look for when you're scouting for new sites? What what makes a good site?
2: Uh, You know, it can be something as nondescript as just a little fragment of bone sitting on the surface. One of the sites that we excavated over the last two years, all we saw at the surface to start with, uh, it was a site that was found by uh, one of our volunteers who works with us. And the very first thing that he saw was two uh, vertebrae sitting on the surface, eroding on the surface, badly broken apart. But that was enough to tell us, well, there might be something more under the surface here. So we started digging in and it's turned into a one of our uh, biggest quarries. We've taken out a lot of bones from a single dinosaur skeleton. I think we've uh, got about 20 bones now, um, some fairly large mm-hmm. uh, that we've been working the last two years. And so, so you never know. It, it might... More often than not, when you find a a fragment on the surface, that's all there is. It was just a a random bit of bone that ended up there and blew out onto the surface, and and that's it. But sometimes a little bit poking out on the surface can mean there's a lot more underneath.
1: Yeah. So you have to have a pretty good eye for these things.
2: You do. Um, The bone out in this area some is oftentimes very difficult to see. It breaks apart immediately when it reaches the surface uh, because of uh, freeze-thaw, because of the wind, water. So it's a really harsh environment for the fossils once they reach the surface. The sun hits them and it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's, you have to find something at the right time. If you're in a spot too early, there could be something 6 inches under you but you never know it mm-hmm. um and if you find something too late uh it's completely blown apart uh into into fragments so you really it is a, a lot of luck it's a, it's a lot of work uh to know that you're looking in the right place um and then actually to do the walking but at its core there's a great deal of luck as well
1: yeah so does that mean you know sometimes you get to a site too early maybe the next season you when you're looking you do you always recheck the sites you'd already looked at. We do.
2: Yeah, we do. We we do make a point of uh, crossing the same ground uh, year after year, keeping an eye on sites. Uh, even if it's a site that we think is is completely finished, we'll go back year after year to make sure of that, to make sure there's nothing new eroding out. Yeah, so it is something that kind of adds to the the list of the to-do list out there. It's not <laughs> it's not just it's not just walking around and finding new sites and digging up new sites. It's also monitoring the old sites to make sure that, that there's nothing new
0: on the surface. Yeah. How yeah. large is this area that you cover when you're investigating?
2: So it's a, it's not a huge area. It's just a couple of square miles where we're fortunate in this area that it does form these really well-exposed badlands. Uh, gives us a lot of area to search. But it's so rich in fossils and uh, such a diversity of fossils that uh, we'll be working in this area for uh, decades to come.
0: Awesome. So, is there anything else that you have upcoming that you'd like to share? Well, we'll be, um, we always have new research coming out of here on the dinosaurs
2: or uh, some of our Pleistocene materials. So, I'd say keep watching the news. We'll have a lot of stuff coming out uh, over the next year or so. The museum's Twitter account and its Instagram and Facebook accounts as well
0: would be good places to look. Are those all Western Science Center?
2: They are, yeah. I think uh, West, Western Center or Western Science Center some combination of, of, of our name, yeah. Great.
1: Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: Thanks again, Andrew. We had a really great time, and we'll have to have you come on the show again for your next dinosaur you discover. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Chunkingosaurus, which was a request from Marcos. So thanks. It was a stegosaur that lived in the Late Jurassic in what is now China in the Upper Shashimiao Formation. It was an herbivore, and the holotype is one of the smallest adult stegosaurs, is about thirteen feet or four meters long.
0: Oh, it's just so tiny.
1: <laughs> yeah. Other specimens were larger. They're estimated to be sixteen point four feet or about five meters long. Chungkingosaurus probably looked similar to Tuojiangosaurus. They were found in the same formation, though smaller and with a high, narrow skull. Chungkingosaurus probably had two rows of plates and spikes on its back that were possibly ranged in pairs. A model of Chungkingosaurus at the Chongqing Municipal Museum has 14 pairs of plates, two pairs of tail spikes, and the plates in the middle look like thick spikes, which is similar to Tuojiangosaurus. Only one specimen has been found with a thagomizer, those tail spikes. And there were two pairs, and they were vertical and stout. So there may have been a third pair, but it was lost during excavation. Hmm. The fossils of Chungkingosaurus were found in 1977, and it was described in 1983 by Dong Jingming and others. The type species is Chungkingosaurus jiangbeiensis, and the genus name means Chunking lizard. It was named for where the fossils were found, the species name in the Jiangbei District of Chongqing Municipality. Four specimens have been found. Jiming and others described all four, but named the three additional specimens as specimen one, two, and three, because there are distinctions between each of them, but they're too fragmentary in nature.
0: Nice. I'm glad they did that rather than just naming four different species. Yeah. it's good.
1: In 2014... Roman Lansky named two of the species as new species, Chunkingosaurus giganticus and Chunkingosaurus magnus, but then later Peter Galton and Kenneth Carpenter said that they were nomina dubia and referred them both to Chungkingosaurus jiangbaensis. Gregory Paul suggested in 2010 that the third specimen was actually a juvenile of Tojiangosaurus. Chungkingosaurus was part of Huayangosauridae, which is a group of basal stegosaurs, they may have been prey for theropods such as Yangchuanosaurus. and other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Chungkingosaurus included Tuojangosaurus and sauropods like Mementosaurus.
0: And our fun fact of the day is that a typical theropod is about three times as long as it is tall when it's kind of in the typical walking, running posture. The reason I point that out is because when I heard about how morose was quoted as four feet tall and six feet long. I was like, wait, those proportions seem wrong, but I don't know what the (laughs) rule of thumb proportions should be. So if something's about four feet tall, that means it should be about 12 feet long in just kind of a general estimation. It varies quite a bit. And that's more based on the hip height because the heads can vary quite a bit. And it seems like in, in smaller dinosaurs, they're often a little bit more upright. So if you think about like the way that a bird stands Its head is quite a bit further up from its hips, but something like a T-Rex, it's like nearly horizontal. So yeah, just a kind of a rough ballpark. It can be really useful though, because usually people quote the length measurements because it sounds a lot more impressive to say that something's like nine feet long rather than just like three feet tall. Because if you think about three feet tall, you're like, oh, it's like the height of a dog, but nine feet long, you're like, oh my God, (laughs) it's terrifying. (laughs) It's like a crocodile. It's also good to keep in mind that about half of that length is usually tail. So it's really like maybe half that length is sort of comparative to something you might be used to seeing. But then of course, even if it's nine feet long and three feet tall, they can generally stretch up a fair amount because they have that S-curve neck for the most part. So if they kind of like tilt their head back and straighten out their neck a little bit, you know, maybe they could get up to four feet. And if they rear back really far, kind of leaning, Maybe they can get up to like four and a half feet. So, so it's pretty variable. But I think the three to one ratio is a pretty good rule of thumb, in case you're wondering. So I often wonder, you hear like, Allosaurus, it's 30 feet long. And I'm like, yeah, but how tall? And the answer is like, probably about 10 feet.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks for listening. And until next time.